This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 90. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session number 90 you're listening to. It's brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com, Universal Audio, Focal Monitors, and Audio Technica. Session number 90. That's right. We are going to be approaching, well, we're actually, not only are we approaching, we're going to begin the countdown to episode 100. So it's been quite a journey here. I was uh, on a call earlier this morning with some um, other podcasters. That's right, other podcasters, getting together with other podcasters to compare notes. I was uh, on a uh, Google Hangout with uh, Lid Shaw from Recording Studio Rockstars, who is my upcoming guest. We'll talk about that in a minute. I was also um, on the Google Hangout with uh, Kern Ramsdale, who is an early working-class audio fan I discovered, which... I didn't realize he runs uh, Home Recording Weekly, and he's been at it for quite some time. So if you haven't checked that out, check go to homerecordingweekly.com or recordingstudiorockstars.com. And we were all just kind of uh, getting acquainted because uh, I'd never met Kern before. Lidge, I, had, I have met and have been talking to recently because we've been uh, interviewing one another. As it turns out, I'm going to be a guest on Lidge's show at some point here in the future. I'm sure he'll announce that. I'll let him do that. But um, yeah, so we're all just kind of comparing notes and they were asking me, you know, when did you start? And so I went back and I checked uh, at, on episode one of the podcast. And as it turns out, I had posted that on September 15th, 2014. So on September 15th will be our two-year birthday, which is pretty interesting. Anyhow, so the podcast is coming up on two-year anniversary on September 15th. And then of course, our 100th episode will be happening you know, pretty soon. Seems like that's just right around the corner. Anyhow, we will be uh, working on some celebratory type things, which I'm not going to announce yet until I know for a fact they're happening and I don't want to mislead anybody. So there. Yeah. So like I mentioned, Lidge Shaw from Recording Studio Rockstars. Lidge asked me to be on his show and I guess that show's still in production. So that's going to come out eventually. So in the meantime, uh, I am having him on my show today and uh, you should check him out. Recording Studio Rockstars. Lidge does a lot of cool stuff. He does uh, this thing behind the Bonnaroo stage when you're at the, the Bonnaroo Music Festival each year where he does what's called the Hay Bale Studio. We talk about that. And we also talk about the two track sessions where he just, you know, brings in a band and mixes it, mixes the band live straight to two track, which is super cool. So, uh, yeah, we'll talk about all that. Speaking of two track recording, you probably have seen on the Facebook page that I posted John Cunaberti, former alumni John Cunaberti from uh, episode five, go back and check that out, uh, has been doing these stereo recordings. Basically, takes, uh, in this case, the, the latest one that he posted, uh, is with a stereo ribbon mic. It's, I believe it's an A A E A R R eighty eight. Yeah. Um, his signal chain is pretty simple. It's just straight into a Millennium mic pre into Pro Tools at uh, 96K. And uh, there's a link on the Facebook page. You should check that out. Unbelievable sounding recording, I got to tell you. Really, really inspiring. So uh, John's going to release these, I think, once a week 
every Wednesday for the next couple months. And when that's done, um, we'll have John on again for a, a quick rundown of what he's doing and how he's doing that, why he's doing that, you know, the process, how long it takes, the details. Because not only is he recording it, but he's also having it filmed in uh, 4K video. So you'll have to check that out. I'll, of course, post a link in the show notes for today, and you can check that out. So, oh yeah, one other thing. You know, I'm uh, a big fan of and user of Backblaze. That is the cloud backup software. I've also talked about CrashPlan in the past. Well, I've kind of transitioned over to Backblaze. like the user interface a, uh, a lot better. Uh, CrashPlan is still cool, but... I'm really digging Backblaze. So I've been using that. I got it installed. I bought it for my uh, my main studio machine, which is basically just a laptop. It's a 15-inch 2012 MacBook Pro. Anyhow, I won't give you the specs of that. I'm not going to geek out on that. But anyway, 2012 Mac Pro there. So I've got it on that machine, and then I've got it on an old MacBook attached to a Drobo uh, RAID. Anyways, the benefit of that is is not only will it back up to the cloud all the hard drives attached to that Mac, but it will also track those machines as well. So if your machine would, were to be stolen, you would be able to go on to uh, Backblaze and immediately start tracking it the minute it signs into a wireless network, assuming that it signs into a wireless network, which is an added bonus. So Pretty cool. Unlimited space and the price is right. I think it's about, I can't remember. I think it was 50 bucks a year, something like that. Pretty fair price, I got to say. So um, what I've done is I've created, I've signed up for an affiliate program with them. What is an affiliate program? Well, that means that if, if you click on the banner that's on the right-hand side of the working class audio page, that says Backblaze, it'll take you to a page that allows you to sign up for free. Check it out. If you want to end up signing up after the trial period ends, then they, at no cost to you, give a kickback to working class audio. That's what an affiliate link is. So I like to be upfront and clear with those things so that when you click on those, you know that that's something I believe in. That's something that uh, the podcast gets paid for. And that money goes back into keeping the podcast running because believe it or not, when I started, the expenses were not too great because, you know, it was pretty simple. It's growing now. There's a lot of services that I'm using to, you know, augment the podcast and keep it going. And obviously, you know, there's things that come in and around, like, you know, traveling to go to the AES show, which I'll be at uh, at the end of uh, September, early October. Uh, I'll be appearing at the Focal booth. And of course, you know, I have to pay my own way. So that helps, you know, contribute to that. And uh, so if you decide you want to sign up for Backblaze, you'd be helping out the podcast in the process. And like I say, that's at no added cost to you, of course, but just, you know, it's essentially, it's a kickback to the show. So uh, yeah, check that out, Backblaze. So uh, yeah, and a couple of things. I do, I do want to make a, a request. If you like the show, please go on over to the iTunes store if that's where you get the show. Even if you don't get the show there, please go on over to the iTunes store and leave a review. Uh, hopefully it's a positive review. And uh, yeah, let the world know that you like it. And Android users, um, you know, I want to make, I'm an Android user on my phone and I want to make it uh, easy for all of us to get the show. So I have a new subscribe on Android banner there on the right side. So yeah, we're growing. 
you get to 100 shows, well, we're not there yet, but as you get to 100 shows, you start to look back and realize, okay, we now have an archive of recordings we need to maintain and we need to make sure that they're available to everybody and we need to maintain this infrastructure and keep going, of course. So I'll quit rambling and let's get right into our interview. Lyd Shaw here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for reciprocating us being on each other's shows. I think this is kind of fun. Dude, it's my, my pleasure. And like I said, you're, um, what did I say? You're my brother from another podcast. Brother from another podcast. That's right. So I have a million questions for you. I'm just looking at your studio's website. And for the listeners, that's the toyboxstudio.com. Uh, you've got a lot of stuff going on. So I'll just start with what I have in front of me and what what I see here. First of all, uh, the Toy Box Studio is located in East Nashville. Is that correct? Yeah, East Nashville, um, the Brooklyn of, to Nashville. Or I like to say that Brooklyn is the East Nashville of Manhattan. How long have you been in the studio? Well, let's see. When I bought my house in 2000, I moved the studio into the house like most of us might with a home studio. I just put everything in the house. And then I had this three-car garage across the yard. And I had my dream was to just kind of move the studio out to the garage I got married, went from being single to family of five, and that was the motivation I needed to go ahead and finally build out the the studio in the garage. So I've been I've been in this space right here for ten years. Okay, so where you're at is in the is in that former garage. Yeah. Okay, so your house is on the same property. Mm-hmm. That's great. So you you're never too far away from from the family. No, never too far. Well. The family has changed too. That the family didn't last quite as long as my studio did, <laughs> but oh. I'm I'm still here, and uh, and I'm still single parenting. I've got a ten year old daughter, and you know we have a blast together. She's very musical too. But one of the things that I really enjoy about having the studio so close is I get to walk across the yard to go to work every day. Yeah, that makes it makes it a pleasure to be so close, and that that is the case for me. So the Toy Box Studio contains a very fascinating piece of equipment. And as I don't really dwell too much on equipment, I always like to highlight the the key things. Uh, you have an MCI console that came out of Criteria, and it is the console that, as we discussed on your show, that basically uh, was used to record a number of Bee Gees hits. Yeah, this console has a ridiculous pedigree. It's already won Record of the Year Grammy twice in 70, I think it was 77 and 78. One of them was Bee Gees' Saturday Night Fever. And the one before that was uh, the Eagles Hotel California. So back oh to back. Oh my God. <laughs> wow, that's intense. Yeah, and yeah, and that, that, that's the top, you know, that's the top of the list there. But it also recorded the soundtrack to Grease. So Grease Lightning was done on this. Oh! It, it did... Um, Wow. 461 Ocean Boulevard for Eric Clapton. So I shot the sheriff. His his version of it was done on this. It did Wear an American Band by Grand Funk Railroad. Wow. So many of us have heard this console, whether we realize it or not. It even recorded Margaritaville. Oh my gosh. Although the wow. full story on that, I believe, is that it was maybe tracked on this, but finished in another studio. Okay. That is truly impressive. I mean, really. That's that's a it's a fascinating bit of history. It's also a very unique looking console. It has more of the look of of those uh, early uh, Abbey Road looking consoles with the uh, with the faders that, or I, I guess at the time did they call them slide wires? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know what they called them at the time, but everybody 
I've always heard refer to them as airplane faders because they look like those, you know, the speed control you grab in the airplane that goes up and over. It's got the curve to it. Over, like over a little, yeah, like a crest you go Yeah, over. and the, I mean, the reason is simple. It's just that it's a lever on a hinge at the very bottom. So it makes an arc when you move it from lowest to highest. And then they just shape the fader in the shape of that arc. And what's the maintenance like on a console like that? Well, it's it, it's two. It depends on which route you choose. You can either have insane maintenance and choose the route of trying to keep it going perfectly all the time, or you can choose the route of blissful ignorance and just kind of blow things off and use what works really well. <laughs> Somewhere in there, there is a balance that one can adopt that works for each individual, I guess. Yeah, and my girlfriend's trying to remind me to choose the route of bliss. <laughs> So you have the Toy Box Studio, but you also participate in uh, what's called the Hay Bale Studio, which is a studio set up in a double-wide trailer surrounded by bales of hay, which is behind the Bonnaroo stage each year. And you invite people to come and record two or three songs. In fact, you've recorded a band that I've recorded at KFOG before, uh, uh, Delta Spirit, which is one of my favorite bands uh, that I never knew about until they set foot into this uh, radio studio that I was working at. And yeah, me too. Me too. Really, really cool band. But uh, the studio that you you do here is uh, kind of a, is it a partnership with the Vintage King? Uh, yeah, I have partnered with Vintage King. So I've been working with Vintage King for, gosh, four or five years now, something like that. I, so my my good friend is, is uh, Chad Evans, who built and created Vintage King in Nashville and Berry Hill. And so I've partnered up with him and Vintage King, and uh, they'll provide basically just extra stuff that we might need for the studio. You know, we set this thing up, and my vision was to create something that, you know, sort of replicated what I really appreciate about a, um, you know, a brick and mortar studio. Um, so I, I really love consoles, and I love, you know, outboard gear and, and nice microphones, and I like to really just go for a great sound. And so with Chad, I've been able to do that. Um, with Vintage King, but it was like, you know, trying to set up all that stuff and take it on site to down to Bonnaroo is huge. It's a huge effort. And there's a million cables and connectors and, you know, racks of gear and stuff. So that's been a really great thing is to be able to have that, that backup where when we need another D sub cable or when we need another, you know, effects unit or a piece of outboard gear, we can turn to Vintage King. Oh, uh, so what's the basic setup that is going on at, uh, at the Hay Bale studio? Well, I can tell you what the basic setup probably should be. It probably should be two channels, two microphones going into two channels into a laptop. But <laughs> like I said, my dream exceeded that a little bit more. And um, so we've been taking down a full-size mixing console. I've been doing a 24-channel snake coming from uh, the other room and and multiple outboard gear, you know, getting getting really great vocal chains going, getting you know, excellent condenser mics on acoustic guitars and things like that. But let me describe it a little bit too, so you sort of can visualize what the scene is down there. Because Bonnaroo is on a giant farm site an hour south of Nashville in Manchester, Tennessee. And so, you know, 100,000 people will come and pitch their tents and camp out in these huge fields. There are a couple of big stages and and three big giant tents down there, and bands are just playing 24-7 for four days straight. And so behind the stages is an area where the artists will you know, do their thing and get ready. And, and there's also a media area. 
I was invited 12 years ago to come down there and create a recording studio for the media area that could record bands and provide that content for radio broadcast. So exactly like what you were doing at KFOG, but just doing it on location in this field setting. So we needed a space to put the studio in. And what we do is we bring in a double wide trailer every time, every year. It's not even the same one. It's a different one every time. And we will go inside and transform this, the interior of this trailer into a complete recording studio with a space for the band and for the audience, what we like to call the peanut gallery in there to watch the band closely. And we actually will remove the wall of the trailer. Dave Gerke is our, our site ops and he does all this construction for us. He's been doing it with me for years. But he'll remove this wall and then put in a new wall with a control room window. And then we'll use the back part as the office space and we'll construct a control room in there. So we'll haul in, you know, a 32 channel uh, mixing console. We've actually, some years we've taken uh, an SSL AWS 48 plus down there. And then um, this past year, I took down my Soundcraft 32 channel DC 2000 board. So it's quite an elaborate setup. But then the other part of the equation is how are you going to get isolation? You're behind a couple of hundred yards behind the main stages, huge sound systems going. And the first year I did this, Sean O'Connell, who had invited me to come down and set this up, he had seen the local farmer, you know, putt-putting around the site as he was arriving and getting set up. And he said, hey, would it work if we maybe um, put some hay bales up around, you know, the studio or something like that? Would that help a little bit? And I was like, you know, light bulb goes off. And I thought, yeah, it's perfect. So what we did is we, we every year now bring in hundreds of bales of hay, stack them all around the entire studio and, and over the top and just encase this thing in hay. So when you walk up to it, it looks like a humongous bale of hay with two doors opening and coming out. And that gives us soundproof so that, you know, or soundproofing so that you don't hear any noise. It's just totally quiet in there with, when the entire festival of 100,000 people are going on. And for the listener, uh, you got to check out the videos uh, of these performances. And then there's a, a news story that's on there on the Toy Box Studio as well. You just click on the Hay Bale Studios link and you get the big picture. It's really super cool what he's doing down there at Bonnaroo. Okay, now, I don't know, maybe this is the paranoid part of me. What what do you do if all that hay catches on fire, man? Is there a no smoking I think, policy? Yeah, there's a no smoking policy. And so we'll always put signs up around and nobody's allowed to smoke inside the the studio, of course. And there's there's a few answers to that. One is you could rush for the door and hope for the best. Another is you could turn your mix up louder and go out in a, you know, a glory of fantabulous music. But I think the third realistic one is I remember at some point when we looked into this, we were researching it and when the hay the hay gets moist and, and wet inside and it's actually has a slow smolder factor i think so i think it's actually not uh the the um fire hazard that you instinctively would think it is mhm so there's another thing i want to uh, touch on that you do uh the stereo sessions what can you tell me about that well so um thanks for asking about that and thanks for saying nice things about the haybell studio too um the stereo sessions was my experience doing the Bonnaroo recordings, which um, I didn't quite finish that story, but what we'll do is we'll bring in band after band for four days. And our target is is a lofty goal of 40 bands recorded in four days. And each band comes in for an hour sound check, records three songs, or performs three songs. And I mix it in real time live into a pair of headphones while they're performing and then um, Joe Hutchinson, who sits right behind me, will master 
the recordings and then they're available for radio within 45 minutes, you know, and they're broadcast. And we have 40 radio markets there so that it kind of one band, it's one stop shop for a band and they hit 40 different radio markets with the, these recordings from Bonnaroo. But what I did is after doing that for some years, I started to really appreciate the, you know, how wonderful it is to record music like that and to record live performances. And not only that, the sound of what I was doing is microphones, you know, it's band into microphones, down the cables, straight into the console, mixed through the console, straight to two track, captured for the master. So it's a very pure sound. You know, we do split the signal and take multi-track backups for archives, but, you know, you haven't heard the sound of that multi-track capture. There has been no digital between you and the musician other than, you know, the finished mix itself. And there's a purity of tone when you record like that, when the sound just goes, you know, unmessed with straight through a console and mixed. And so I began to really fall in love with that sound and the pace of creativity to be able to record so much stuff. And so I thought, why don't I just recreate something like that back here in my studio in Nashville? What a great way to start creating something that would help promote the studio, help work with other bands, do something that's fun, you know, have a reason to have friends over and have kind of a party. And so that's what prompted um, the stereo sessions. I started inviting bands to just come and perform and I would mix it. And then uh, we started including video. You know, I, I sort of stumbled through all this stuff. First, I had kind of the audio figured out. And then I started getting into the video and the first video I did is I just took a you know a cheap video camera and stuck it on a music stand and, and just pointed it at the band and it just sat there. And I kind of learned the um, the hard way that you know a shot of a band just sitting there can be pretty boring after a while. So we started putting it, bringing in more cameras and, and uh, you know using iPhones and things. But to make a long story short, we, we included video. I discovered that it can be a lot of work and a lot of, lot of hassle to uh, use fancy HD cameras and bring in, you know, quote, video guys um, in the same way that recording multitracks and deciding to mix the music later can be a big hassle. And so we started trying to simplify how we could produce videos for all these bands. And we would just, you know, I thought, why don't we just use iPhones and iPads and stuff like that and, and do it all in iMovie, just make it super quick and fun and and start cranking it out. Interesting. That thrill of recording a two-track recording there's nothing else like it. It's a little scary, very, but uh, it's it's nice knowing you have the the multi-track backup just in case. But man, it's a real victory to get a two-track recording done and go. Yeah, that's that sounds great. It's done. Um, John Cunaberti, who uh, has been on the show here on Working Class Audio before, he does a, a thing here in the Bay Area where he brings in bands to the studio usually to 25th Street Studios, I believe. And he does the the band around the stereo pair of mics. And he, you know, places everybody in the right place and they do their take and that's it. It's it's pretty fascinating. Yeah, I love the, that stuff. I love the sound of that, you know. Just a stereo pair of mics, so pure. If you just get things positioned and people play well. That's one way to do it. The way you're doing it, that's a little fly by the seat of your pants because you're you're dealing with multiple inputs and and my bands know. have headphones on by the way I didn't mention that but they're all in headphones so they're hearing my mix as I'm mixing it and an interesting thing that happens is you begin to have this subconscious you know sublevel or subtext dialogue with the band musically 
when I make uh-huh. a change in the mix, they hear that and they make a change in their performance. And I hear that and I make a change in the mix, you know? That's that's interesting. And, and there is a live audience. Is there a live audience in both cases, in, in the stereo sessions and the hay bale sessions? Yes. Hay and, bale studio? Yeah, yes and no. It's not live audience like stage plus seating area. It's more like live audience like everybody's hanging around the studio while it's happening. And it, at the hay bale studio, I always have uh, what we call the peanut gallery of headphones set up so that, um, you know, VIPs, people who are closely connected to the band, you know, media labels, whoever is going to be their managers, they can pop headphones on and listen into the mix while it happens. And it's a lot of fun to see the smiles on their faces, you know, when the band's performing and they hear all that reverb and other stuff. (laughs) (laughs) But um, here in the studio, people might have some headphones on, but they're more likely to be sort of uh, hanging around around the control room and hearing it come through the speakers in real time. So it's an audience that is staring at the back of my head while I mix when I'm in the studio. Well, and I was, I was watching the Edward Sharp and the Magnet, Magnetic Zeros video, and just you could sense that he had the headphones on and he was really playing with what he was hearing back. Yeah, and I think he also took his off for some of those songs, you know, which is, it's cool because it all works, you know. I think he, he heard the reverb, he knew it was going on, but if if he needed to hear the band in the room, he could just take a headphone off or do it however he wanted. Interesting. Fun stuff you're doing there. Thank you. Um, now, obviously, we have to touch on this because this is this is our uh, beyond our recording experiences. We also have the uh, the common denominator that we each have podcasts. And uh, you have the podcast recording studio, Rockstars. Uh, curious, how did that come about and what was your inspiration for that? Yeah, thanks, man. I uh, totally agree. Um, and I'll say this again for your listeners. Uh, who Do you have a name for your listeners? Do you call them anything? I your don't. buddies, your pals? <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I just always refer to to uh, the recording world at large as our recording brothers and sisters. Yes, yeah. And then, like I said, you're my you're my brother from another podcast. So. <laughs> So um, that that's right in line with that. Yeah. So I like to f- refer to my listeners as the rock stars, um, as well as my guests. You know, my my goal with the podcast is to pretty much just uplift everybody involved. I've been recording for 25 years, um, so I'm I'm very passionate about making records and recording, and it's you know ingrained in me and it's in my blood. It's what I what I eat, sleep, and and dream. But I discovered podcasts a few years ago because I, I do road trips. You know, I don't know if a lot of your listeners are also musicians and probably have spent time in a car and maybe toured around. Uh, but for me, discovering podcasts initially was like this. It was a new thing. You know, I think when I was younger, I liked to listen to music on those long drives. And as I got a little older and more seasoned, hopefully more seasoned, <laughs> uh, I discovered that it, cranking the music for an eight hour car drive would just wear me out. You know, I was worn out by the time I'd get somewhere. And what, so I discovered podcasts where all of a sudden you've got, you know, your selection of essentially talk radio for, for rides in the car. Um, and obviously there, I also would listen to it other places when I was running sometimes, uh, going to the gym, things like that. But it's, it's a lot of fun to be able to find something that you're really interested in and then just subscribe to that podcast and go listen and you're, you know, when you want to learn stuff and listen. So I was following, uh, at that time, I was also really interested as a, you know, a self-employed, a, a small business, self-employed studio owner. I wanted to just learn more about business. I just wanted to 
learn more about what you need to know to do well with your business. And so I started looking around for podcasts that were about that. And I discovered a guy I think we talked about named Pat Flynn, and he has a great business podcast called The The Smart Passive Income. And then there was another one I discovered, a guy named John Lee Dumas, and he had one called Entrepreneur on Fire. And both of these guys are completely different personalities. I know that they're they're close friends in the in podcasting, but very different takes on what your voice and your personality is on on a podcast. But that got me really interested in in listening to these guys. They sort of educated me in the opportunity to create a podcast and in something that that I would be passionate about, which is recording. And so mm-hmm. so that just kind of opened that opened my eyes to that and opened the door. And then I just decided I wanted to start making my own podcast about the studio. And I thought about all the great people that I know that are recording, producers, engineers, musicians. I mean, I live right here in Nashville, Tennessee, where we just have an an endless uh, supply of incredible talent. And so I just, you know, I just kind of decided to start doing it. And um, and then launched recording studio rock stars. I haven't listened to that many episodes of yours because I'm just getting into it and I'll be honest with you. I don't listen to a lot of podcasts, but uh, yours will be one of the podcasts on my list moving forward. And I'm sure you you get this too. I love talking to people. I love hearing their stories and getting that information from them. Yeah. And those share, not only shared experiences, but also hearing about their experiences that I haven't had that I can kind of refer to. And and when you, when you hear it in podcast format, it really can... Uh, I think a lot of my listeners always chime in and say, I feel like I'm in a bubble and your show helps me feel like I'm part of a, a bigger community. And that's, I think that's important. And something that's, I'll, I'll share with you that just as a fellow podcaster, many, many years ago when, I can't remember when this was exactly, I think it was, I'm going to say it was around 99 or 2000. Um, maybe it was around 2001 podcasting actually had started and it, well, at least that's when I discovered it. And I discovered it via, uh, I don't know if you remember Tim Curry from MTV, uh, uh, MTV VJ, Tim Curry. Uh, he, um, God, I think that's his name. Wasn't wait, wasn't At, Tim Curry and, uh, no, the, uh, no, Adam Curry, sorry. Adam Curry, Adam yeah. Curry, not Tim Curry. Tim Curry is, is uh, Tim the, Curry from the Rocky Horror the Rocky Picture, Horror Picture Show. Show. Yeah, right. Adam Curry uh, from MTV started this podcast, and he was, I think, he was doing it out of a cottage in England, and he, he was an American. And so I was just imagining this guy with this little recorder making these shows, and it was originally him that inspired me early on. And I started a, a podcast called the Broken Radio Podcast eons ago and was just interviewing musicians. I did like five episodes and then I bailed. But Well, it had to be broken, right? It was broken. It was severely broken. <laughs> so fast forward to now. And now there are a plethora of podcasts. There's Recording Studio Rockstars, Working Class Audio. Um, you know, I'm, I actually do listen uh, to uh, Bobby Osinski's podcast. Yeah, Bobby uh, O's inner, inner, inner Circle. Yeah, He's great. I, I, I mean, he's, he's, that guy's brilliant, man. I'm so, I'm so honored to have been able to meet him and get to know him in the past year. I just finished reading his new book, Music 4.1. And uh-huh. it's just, I mean, the, it's so good. It's good. It's a great content, great insights into the music business. And, you know, for somebody like me who's been doing it for a minute, you might look at a book and think, well, what am I going to learn that's new? 
I learned a ton of new stuff just reading through that. Bobby Osinski's got a great show and, and I look forward to digging in deeper to your show. And I would encourage my listeners as well to check out Lidge's show. Cause you know, the more information, the better. Please period. do. I, I invite all, all your listeners to please come listen. If you'd like, um, the way I like to describe the show, and I thank you for that, is um, it's, a, it's a podcast bringing you inside the recording studio to meet with recording professionals, hear their stories, learn from their experiences so that you can make your best record ever and be a rock star of the studio yourself. That's basically my mission statement right there. Yeah, and, and I love your your concept that you're trying to you know lift everybody up. I think that's a, a great position to take with your show. Kudos to you. Well, thank you. So, and I love your show too, dude. So thank well, you for having me on it here. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Well, let, let's go down the path that, that doesn't always lift everybody up when I bring this, these topics up, but, uh, let's talk about, uh, some of the, the business aspects of, of all of your adventures and, you know, how it works or does not work. I, you know, I know it's not always an easy road. So what are some of the challenges that you faced in getting to where we are today, personally, financially, and, uh, and then we'll talk about some of the victories as well. Well, let me think back. I mean, I think that I've gone through some different chapters of what I've done with my career musically. And I know that when I started, one of the big challenges was that I really wanted to um, I wanted to produce. I didn't want to just engineer. I wanted to let my creativity be part of the process. Mm. And I remember that uh, there was a band I was working with from the first studio I was at. And we got to this point where they were, you know, they were sort of putting their money together in little bits and and trying to come in and hire me. But it was already like I was having to do a ton of work for not much at all. So an example would be I, I, at that point in my life, I would have gladly hopped in a car, driven to St. Louis, spent, you know, 72 hours without sleep recording with them and driven home all for 50 bucks, you know, because I just wanted to make records so badly. So that was a you know an initial obstacle for me. It was like, how how am I going to do this? How am I going to make records the way I want? And I remember having a conversation with them because this was you know this was a while ago. This was still a band that was thinking we want to get our stuff together and we want to get a record deal. You know, bands would were getting record deals around them, and people were you know it looked like a really lucrative opportunity for a band. It looked like the way to go. Mm-hmm. And so I said, I had a conversation with them. I just said, well, let's figure something out. How about um, we, you know, go to this studio? Um, they had connections in Madison, Wisconsin at Smart Sound at um, Butch at, Figg's uh, place. Yeah, Butch Figg's place. And so that was a great opportunity for us to get into a really great studio to record with these guys. And I worked out an arrangement with them where they bought my plane tickets to Chicago and then I'd hop in a car with them and I'd go record these demos. I think that's all I asked them in, to invest at that point. But we kept track of all my time that I worked on it with them. And when they got a record deal, they would have to reimburse me, you know, at whatever my desired full scale rate was at that time. And so we worked for, you know, eight months, nearly a year, I think. And um, I mean, not not every day, but like, you know, going up for weekend sessions and and spending time up them with them in the studio. And at that point, they finally did get a deal, you know, and it worked. And they actually came back and they paid me what they owed me. And then they brought me on to make the records with them um, or that initial record. It turned out to be great. The struggle part of that is trying to figure out, you know, 
how how are you going to get your foot in the door? How are you going to get started in something instead of just having a band, you know, move on because they can't couldn't have hired me to uh, to continue engineering for them at the time. And then, you know, moving forward, I I think that later on, I worked with those guys, one of the guys for 10 years, actually, this is coming up close to the present where I was about to start a family and I was spending all my time working in the studio with this, with this band. It was a new band now, it was new, new record label, you know, but we had worked together in different iterations of his band over 10 years. And we were just at a point where it was just constant, constant hustle in the studio. If we went in to make a record, we would spend a a year working on one record, seven days a week in the studio, just recording, 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 editing, editing, editing. I was always traveling to do it. I was gone. I would be out of town. And here I was, I, I was trying to start a new family in Nashville. I had gotten married. My daughter was a year old and I was in a position where I needed to take the work so much that I agreed to go to Los Angeles to go make this record. And we started on something that was supposed to take, you know, as we went into the studio, it was supposed to be like nine weeks or something like that, you know, a year later and we're not done. We're still working on this stuff. And I, and you're in Los Angeles the whole time. I'm in Los Angeles and I was um, in the process of moving my studio down into the garage at, which was taking me two years actually to do uh, because it was so scattered and piecemeal. And, and at one point I had my basement my basement converted into the studio and the mixing area. So I'm sitting there mixing with the dryer going right behind my head. But I'm in Los Angeles now and I've been doing this for a year. And finally, I just got to a point where I was just like, I just can't do it anymore. And I just had to quit this 10 year, what you know felt like I was just quitting 10 years of hard work and went back to Nashville to go be with my family. And that just felt like such a low point in my life. I think that we got ahead of ourselves with the, with the budget and the label. And, you know, I ended up not being able to collect on, you know, was like nearly $30,000 worth of work at that point too. And I had to come back and just kind of regroup. And it felt like a huge failure for me. I mean, it felt like Everything I had built up towards just collapsed and failed. And, and you know, here I was back and I was, I was like, didn't know what I was going to do for work. I didn't know what I was going to do for money. You know, I was not going to follow these guys to wherever they were headed with this, this next record that was meant to break. You know, you know that mm. story. This, this is going to be the big one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, and so, and really that's not to, uh, you know, like paint too bleak a picture or point fingers. It was nobody's fault but my own. I mean, I had invested everything into this one situation, this one work opportunity, when it finally just didn't pan out, it looked like the worst thing that could happen, but it became the best thing that could happen. Because what it meant was I finally came back here and I took a look at my own skills and my own ability and my ability to build a business that was me and work with multiple clients and really stay in Nashville and not be gone all the time and begin to build uh, some, you know, build a name for myself here. And that was the beginning of the Toy Box Studio, really, the, this iteration of its past 10 years. And so, you know, as, as you, you've seen on the website, I've been able to do some stuff that has been a lot of fun to do in the past 10 years. And all of that came from this moment of total collapse where everything just fell apart. But that, op- that became an opportunity that allowed me to create the kind of studio and the kind of business 
and and begin to grow a career in music that I really was hoping to do in the first place. I'm speaking for myself here. I know that in my past, I have operated with blinders on, ignoring warning signs and ignoring uh, people around me trying to, you know, tell me, hey, you need to pay attention to these other things. And I just kept going until I, it, I just failed. That's exactly what I was doing. Blinders is the best word for it, man. <laughs> you know, you just, you don't see it. You don't see what's going on around you. I'm, I'm actually, I'm digging through some paperwork that came home. Uh, my kids just started school this past, past week and all this paperwork came home. And as you were telling me that story, here we go. My, my youngest, who's in the third grade, his teacher sent home this, this thing I have yet to read, but it did catch my attention. And it's a, uh, it's an article by a Joe J O Bowler B O A L E R, a Stanford professor of mathematics education, online course experimenter, co-founder of UCubed, author of the new book Mathematical Mindsets, and I know everybody's like, "What the hell are we about to hear, Matt?" Wait, how old's um, your kid? He's in what second grade? <laughs> I have a yeah yeah I have a third grader and a fifth grader. This is this was to the parents, but um, basically uh, the na- the name of the article is called "Mistakes Grow Your Brain." And my son's third grade teacher is really trying to emphasize to her students that making mistakes is how you learn. And if you don't make mistakes, you're not trying. So as we kind of, you know, rehash our, our, our past sins, as I like to say for, uh, in recording, you know, that's how we learn. That's how we get to these, these points of, of uh, clarity, I think. Yeah. So as you're telling your story there, I realize, you know, that, that's, that's tough. It was a big mistake, you know? Well, I think some takeaways for me, I think it was good that I did it. You know, it was good that I went through that. I like to think of that 10 year uh, chapter of my career as being my graduate school because I dug in. I mean, I did some other, other records as well when I was back in town, but I spent the majority of my effort working with these guys and, and these bands they were in. And when we did that, I was deep in the studio and it was like, wake up, work, you know, till you go to sleep, really learning Pro Tools from what probably Pro Tools 4 when we started all the way up to, um, I don't even remember what we were up to, seven or eight by the time I was done with those guys. Um, and six is sort of where I went in with my studio, you know, (laughs) isn't that funny. Isn't that funny how we mark time in our studio life by the, the version of pro tools we were on. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) So I apologize to anybody else who's like, what are you talking about, dude? But anybody who's been through this version of pro tools knows what I'm talking about. But, um, that period and that kind of intensity allowed me to really, that was sort of like my 10,000 hours, you know, that was my time in the studio to, essentially master something or get pretty close to mastering something, understanding what it means to record, understanding how to interact with musicians and capture the right kind of thing, understand what it means to go through and edit stuff, tune vocals, um, you know, comp tracks and pro tools, all that kind of stuff. But what I missed out on by focusing and sort of putting all my eggs in one basket with a particular artist is I feel like I did, in hindsight, miss out on the opportunity to fail client to client. And so I didn't allow that opportunity to appear until I opened my own studio here and began to work with more of a variety of different clients where you can say, well, you know, 
I'm available here. I'll work with you. And then, you know, I'm not available here because this day or next week I'm working with this client. And you begin to experience what it's like working with all the different people and really helping them make their records. So there's different, you know, there's just different perspectives to the way you work and what kind of failures are opportunities and come along or which ones you might need to switch gears so that you can, you know, expose yourself to. All right. I hope you're enjoying the interview here with Lid Shaw here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. It's time to take a sponsor break with our friends over at Audio-Technica. And if you've been over to the Working Class Audio site, you may notice on the right-hand side, we have a new banner for them. It's the Artist Series Rebate, and I'm going to click on that now. That's going to take you over to a page, of course. They're basically having some rebates and. Anybody who buys an Artist Series microphone uh, between September 1st, 2016 and December 31st, 2016, will get a rebate. So uh, if you're getting an ATM 450 or an ATM 230 pack, uh, there's a $30 rebate there, $20 rebates on the 710s, the 250s, and the M610As, and then $15 rebates on the 230s, the 410s, the 510s, and the the 650s. So all you got to do is... uh, Purchase any eligible Audio-Technica Artist Series microphone from an authorized AT dealer in the U.S. or its territories between those dates, September 1st, which has just passed, and uh, December 31st of this year. And then there's a uh, very simple URL there, register online. You'll go over there. You'll see the list of the mics available to get a rebate from. So if you're thinking about making a purchase of an Artist Series mic, uh, this would be a good time to do it, of course, because you're going to get some money back. And then you just follow the directions on how to get your rebate there. They uh, take you through the process step by step. Super simple. Yeah, make sure and do that. If you forget where that is, just head on over to workingclassaudio.com and head on over to the uh, right side, the Artist Series Rebates banner that you see right at the top of the page there, just under the subscribe to iTunes and Android banners that we have there. Make sure and check that out. All right, let's get back to it here with Lid Shaw here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. I, I have to ask, and and might be a touchy subject, but the, the work-life balance factor in the family, that was a rough period, I would imagine. Yeah, it definitely was. And, um, you know, as I've admitted to, I didn't get it right, but I got it more right. So, uh, you know, I'm really grateful to my family for having given me the opportunity to begin to learn what it means to have a work-life balance. You know, when I went from, when I got married, I went from single to family of five because my my wife at the time had two young girls and, and then we had a baby. Um, and so I began to, you know, start working in my studio and rather than go in the morning and go till you drop at night. I was like, oh, I got to take time off and go spend time with the family at dinner and put the kids to bed. And, you know, maybe I'm going back to work after that. And then that sort of evaporated until I finally arrived at a place where, you know, for years now, I have just said, hey, I I work Monday through Friday, 10 to 6. That's when I want to work. And I'm going to do all my sessions in that time. And then I'm going to use the rest of the time however I want. I mean, I still I still work a lot because you know I'm I'm using a lot of that time to do things like grow- build a podcast, for example. But um, you know, it's it's nice to have that boundary. Once I I burnt out on doing the you know the 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 burning the midnight oil sessions, I finally just started to say, I'm good from here to here. And as I get older, I get even more focused on that. And maybe that's why I I don't know if it's this way for you, but. I've been gravitating more and more as I get older towards mixing and mastering and less on the tracking side. But 
you know, I well, don't have, I don't, I don't have this, the, the infrastructure of the studio, like the toy box that, that you do. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think that, um, probably we would gravitate towards the things that seem to fit our work environment pretty well too. And, and our work temperament. Um, I love mixing and mastering, but I haven't, you know, I've had the opportunity to just say, Hey, I'm just going to mix. I'm just going to be a mixer and that's all I'm going to do. But I never really wanted to do that because the truth is I do have a great environment here for recording people performing together, you know, a band actually performing. And I live in Nashville, Tennessee, where people really appreciate that and they do a damn good job of performing together, you know? And so for me, it's actually a lot of fun to come in in the morning, be ready for a band to go, get everybody sound checked and into that. I called it, call it building the machine. So you're, you're getting everybody situated to where they're in headphones, they're playing their instrument, it all makes sense to them and they're feeling like making music. And you've kind of built this instrument for them to perform that is to the studio today, you know? And then once they get going, it's just, I, I enjoy hanging out with my friends in the studio, you know, just, I love it. It's great. So I like doing it all, but I really love tracking bands, I have to say. You're in a similar position to Dave Fridman, who has is known for his work with the Flaming Lips, uh, amongst many other bands. Yeah, you had him on your show. Man, um, the situation he described with, you know, it kind of being a, a bit of a family affair is is really cool. And just, you know, it's nice to have your own place. Uh, sometimes I, you know, I mean, I have my own place in the sense of a mixing and mastering room that occasionally we do some overdubs in, but tracking a band here at my house would be like, that's impossible. I couldn't do that. Yeah. I've often thought, should I build on and then I think, well, it's really a conversation with my wife I'm not ready to have. And also I think I like going out to other studios. So I'm curious, you being in Nashville and having all these studios available to you, do you ever venture out from the toy box? Well, I don't, I, ha I haven't been doing that as much, you know, recently because I sort of created something that works so well for me and it's a lot of fun and I, and I know it, but I used to be all over the place. And, you know, before I was primarily in here, I was always in a new studio. So I'm very comfortable going into a completely fresh new environment in a different studio and recording that way. I've just found that uh, a lot of times I can get great results right here without going somewhere else. And for a band that is really trying to figure out how they're going to afford to make this record that is their, their dream, their vision, I'm just you know looking for the best ways for them to spend their money wisely. I want to ask you a little bit about your free mix training, uh, your mix master bundle. Well, can you, can you tell me about that? Yeah, sure. So uh, I wanted to create something. Well, I want to do two things. I wanted to be able to connect with people and audience, and I wanted to create something that would help people out. And also, you know, as a result, really let people know who I am, you know, and how I like to help. And so I have a record called Skadoosh, which I made. It's totally instrumental. I made it with a, a buddy of mine, Corey Siegel, is a great drummer from Nashville. And we just came in and, and did nine songs, and, and I played all the instruments on them and you know, made this record. And so I thought, well, I'm just going to take one of the great songs off this that I really like called American Winter and make a video training series that teaches how I would go through and mix this song 
using stock plugins and pro tools that anybody else would have available to them. Just go through the basics, show it off, share the multi-tracks, um, make a short ebook to go with it that has photos from the session, uh, demonstrates you know how I mic things up, what it looked like, the guitars, the amps, just gives a little insight into it and just put this out there for people to download for free if they want. Uh, for my audience, you know, I wanted to give something to them, to the rock stars to be able to just, you know, learn more about mixing. And, you know, like I say, it's my song, it's me. And so if you like that, you might like me and you might like my podcast. And if you don't like that, you'll probably know pretty quickly and know that I'm not the guy for you. you know? <laughs> I got to ask, you know, there there is an enormous amount of uh, training information out there. You know, uh, Warren Hewitt's doing some stuff, uh, mix with the masters, uh, pure mix, uh, you know, fab and, 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 and everybody over there. Yeah. Um, th there's a lot of stuff out there and I'm curious how you feel like you fit into that world. I mean, with there being so much, did you, did you think, oh, well, I'm just going to, you know, as it says here, it's free. So yeah, well, nobody's you know, got to pay for it. Nobody's got to pay for it. Just go. If you guys are interested in checking it out, all you need to do is go to mixmasterbundle.com, and there's no spaces in that. Um, another easy way to get it is to just text mixmasterbundle with no space to 33444, and that will just send it directly to your your phone, your text message, and then your, into your email. So that's a e very easy to get. Um, as far as what kind of gall I have to join the you know, no, the no, world no, no, no. Of, of educators. I mean, honestly, I think that, you know, both of us, Matt, you and I, we've been doing this for a long time. We've got plenty to teach, you know, and there, there are so many people out there in the world that are eager um, and anxious to learn how to record. And just, you know, I, I have interns here at the studio that I'm teaching all the time and they just love it. I mean, they're, they're us so, so many years ago that are that just want a chance to be in the studio, just want a chance to learn. I remember when I was, you know, first coming out of interning, my internship was great. I was in the studio, but then when it was over and I was working in the studio and I would meet people, you know, I was in the studio working with them when I happened to have that assisting gig. But if I wasn't, I was thinking, man, I really wish I was in the studio with so-and-so. I would just like to be a fly on the wall, you know? And I, and I remember asking them, be like, man, I, I'll just be there for free. You know, if you just, if I could just come help out, do anything. And I mean, you've heard other people asking you that now, and somehow that never fits, you know, that, that young, eager desire to be there um, and just hang out, just learn, never seems to quite connect with the professional who's got a job to get done every day. And they're like, yeah, thank you so much for your enthusiasm, but I really, I can't just have you there hanging out. You know, you might have room for interns. You might have room for an assistant that you hire that knows exactly what needs to get done. And so it's part of the process. But I thought with recording studio rock stars and with my teaching, I could open up that opportunity for more people, you know, sort of make it so that anybody who wishes they could kind of be in there and hang out and hear those stories and learn from all these different professionals would have the chance as if they were sitting in the control room, hanging out. And also to answer your question, as far as the teaching goes, yes, there are many teachers and there are many great teachers out there, but one thing that, that, uh, any of us have, and this goes for your music too, that, that allows us to exist in a high, what might look like lots of competition is that what we personally bring to it is totally unique and nobody else can 
do it the way I do it. Nobody else, Matt, is going to make a podcast the way that you do it or teach the way you do it or mix and master the way you do it. And that's the thing that is also our greatest strength, you know, and that's what I learned when I came back from that 10 years of, you know, slaving away for a dream that was, you know, hanging up on the wall promised by a major label and finally just opening my own studio and producing things the way I wanted to do it is that all along I had the tools I needed to be as successful as I could be. All I had to do is just believe in myself and focus on really finding a way to let my own creative voice out. So that's, I guess that's a long answer to your question, but that's what I'm trying to do with the teaching too, is I just want to teach in a way that is genuinely me, bring in the musicians that I really love, bring in the producers and engineers I really love, help people interact and and just get great at making the music that they want to make. You know, as you say this, it it brings up a couple things uh, off the top of my head. And I want to emphasize this to not only your audience, but my audience as well, is that and, and this stems a little bit of, of a philosophy that I've heard Steve Albini speak of. And that is, you know, Steve talks about how he doesn't really focus or pay much attention to what's going on with record labels and the, the quote unquote record business. He just has his business that's recording bands and running his studio. And he exists in that world and it totally works which makes me want to say that you don't have to be with, with due respect to, to anybody. And I, and I believe this includes yourself as well. That has uh, is a Grammy winning person uh, or Grammy nominated. Uh, you don't have to have major label credits or big label credits to be a successful engineer uh, or producer. If you want to do it, do it for the love of it and helping out musicians to make their dream come true. Not necessarily for, big awards. Yeah. So a couple of things. One is my Grammy award is for being the studio owner for a record that won record of the year in 2015. Mike Ferris, Shine for All the People, won the um, Roots Gospel Album of the Year. So uh, I was able to, uh, when that happened, it was mixed on my console. So when that happened, uh, I was, I got on the horn with, hey, what do I need to do to get my award? You know, so I mean, come on, are you kidding? Any one of us who knows that uh, it's it's wonderful to be able to have Grammy anywhere near your name. So um, thank you for bringing that up. And then I'm glad you brought up Steve because Steve, I've worked with Steve a lot, um, you know, many months actually. And he was a big influence on me, still is. And uh, he's such a great guy, such a great guy. And before I met him, I think the rumor mill got to me first, introduced me to Steve first. And there was a issue of, um, I think the magazine was called Magnet, um, that was published probably in the nineties or something. It had this great photo of, uh, on the cover and it was Steve Albini, really small standing and like looking up at the camera, you know, like he's looking up at the stage lights. And then the the title was who's the biggest asshole in rock and roll. (laughs) And so, you know, I saw that and I heard stories that, you know, Steve was always known for being very opinionated and, you know, he was, he would really stand by his convictions and he was, you know, he would call bullshit on things that he didn't, he didn't like. And when I finally met him, he's the nicest guy in the world. You know, he would like, you know, he'd probably, you know, dive into the, into icy Arctic waters to come rescue you off, you know, if you fell off a glacier, not that that's going to happen, but he's just (laughs) a super duper nice guy. And so hanging out with him in the studio and seeing and learning 
what he did and how he created electrical um, in Chicago was so inspiring to me. I mean, here's a guy who started out in a home studio. Um, and then he, I think one of the big records for him was when he got to do Page Plant. I think it was mm. around that time was also when he was deciding to finally move out and build electrical audio. And he built this beautiful facility. I mean, it's a big um, commercial space in Chicago. Uh, they It's multi-story. They have two stu studios. There's Studio A and Studio B. He just has this attitude of he every day, if he's working, helping people make a record, he's happy. You know what I mean? Um, in fact, I remember asking him at one point, I was like, do you ever take a day off? And he was, his answer was something along the lines of, well, no, not, not if I can help it, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and yet, you know, he's, here's also a guy who's, who's got a, a, a wonderful girlfriend and, you know, they live there. He, he built a studio where the apartment is kind of, well, you know, it's like, he, I think there's an apartment in the studio and there's dorms for the bands and it's just this sort of magical environment where you can go make records and everybody's, everybody's loving it, you know? And I'll say this too. He also created an environment where at a time when big studios were beginning to all just close their doors, maybe not even beginning anymore, closing their doors, you know, early 2000s, here's a guy who goes out and opens a big studio and decides to have um, a staff of eight people working for him. You know, he hired people into the studio scene. So that, I just wanted to give a big shout out to Steve because I think he's an exemplary individual. Yeah. All of my interactions with him have been at uh, tape op conferences at pot potluck audio conferences that followed that. And, um, you know, I, I don't always agree with him, uh, from, you know, a, a workflow or a perspective or maybe, um, an opinion about certain types of music or whatever, but what, what's wrong with you, dude. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I did get, I, I've always been left with that impression. Every time I see him, uh, I always think, God, man, that guy is just such, he's so pro and he's so nice. And I'm sure he's, you know, rubbed some people the wrong way over the years, but who hasn't, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, he comes from a punk rock ethos, you know, you're supposed to rub people the wrong way or else it's That's not right. punk, right? Um, so I always ask this on the show, your economic philosophy as it pertains to your recording career in terms of um, how you approach gear purchases, your viewpoints on, on debt for gear, your uh, how you run your studio. And, you know, is there a big, big, you know, retirement idea in the future or, or is this just, uh, you know, a runaway train? Uh, retirement idea is something I'm still figuring out. So I don't have any answers to that yet other than I'm, I'm going to continue looking at that equation very hard every day. And figuring it out. Uh, uh, financial strategies for me with the studio for that, you know, first chapter of my recording career, I just spent everything I had buying gear and acquiring stuff. So before I had a studio, I already had acquired a studio's worth of gear, you know. Before you had a studio, you had a studio. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and um, now I think I have two, you know, I've got a bunch of gear that I don't even know what I'm going to do with. Uh, but I was, you know, I just, was working. eBay was new then. It was exciting. It was an exciting time with eBay. And even before eBay it was an exciting time because then when you traveled, you know, you'd drop into thrift stores and music stores around the country and you'd, you know, you'd discover these gems, these, these treasures. Um, but I was, I was on e eBay and I would get outboard gear. You know, in fact, I'd be 
working on something with Steve, for example, and I'd see a microphone that he liked and that I liked. And I was like, okay. And I'd go on eBay and I'd find that mic and I'd order two, you know? And so pretty much everything that I earned, I just spent on gear. So you can call that a strategy or not, but I was accumulating, I was investing in my ability to record by collecting the gear that I thought I needed to record with. I bought a tape machine when I was out in Los Angeles by looking in the trader's post that was out there. Uh, probably not the best way to do it because I could have bought a great one here in Nashville, but I found a, <laughs> a JH-16 when I was in LA and then I had it shipped you know, for nearly $1,000 to Nashville at the time. And I've still got it and it still, still runs and it's great. Uh, but once I had accumulated that stuff and I decided to um, move my studio to the space it's in now, that's when I, I have to say, I kind of stopped buying gear. Uh, my, my strategy shifted. I discovered, and I think this is a lesson to anybody, if you are out there and you're thinking about um, having a studio of your own, really know what it means. Because once you start a studio and you're working with clients regularly or you're, you know, you're producing re records regularly, your obligations are to things like making sure the air conditioning works, making sure that you've got uh, connectors and cables to hook things up, enough mic stands, enough, you know, whatever, music stands, um, and toilet paper, you know, you're not necessarily spending money on cool gear anymore. You might not even buying, be buying cool plugins and software, uh, although that is kind of hard to break that habit. But, you know, I didn't, I, once I had enough to make a, a great record with, I don't really covet gear in the same way. I don't look for the hottest new mic pre and the new microphone, everything. I've also been fortunate. So I, I've worked with companies closely. And, and uh, when I have had situations like Bonnaroo happen, um, sometimes I, I've looked at a, that situation as an opportunity for me and my career. And if the studio itself wasn't necessarily growing in terms of budget in the studio. I looked at, in other words, if I wasn't getting paid more every year to do it and it wasn't growing in a big way that way, I looked at it and I thought, well, what's another way to leverage this opportunity? Well, one way is to just grow the studio there, maybe maybe invite sponsors in to provide gear for the studio and, um, and help us really create a, a, a better studio there. And so in doing those sorts of things, I've been able to also connect with some different companies and sometimes bring in gear into my studio, you know, microphones, headphones, uh, cabling, different things like that. So those are different ways that I, I, you know, sort of get new gear in the studio. And then now it's like when something breaks and I got to get it, that's where the money goes. You know, I, I had to, I had a uh, PreSonus monitor station in here for a long time and then that broke and kind of like jumping from Pro Tools 6 to Pro Tools 11, HDX, I went from the uh, monitor station. I then got the um, the Dangerous Audio Monitor ST, which is, I think that's what it's called. Yeah, and it sounds really fantastic. So I had a lot of people tell me, you really want to get a great master section if you can. And when I did, it's it's pretty great sounding. Mixed with the masters has a new... Um free video floating around out there with Chad Blake. And anyways, he's talking about in this video, he's like, you know, don't worry about getting, you know, the greatest mic or mic pre or I'm paraphrasing, of course, but he talked about the importance of your monitoring system. I love that. He's like, if you can't hear what you're doing, doesn't even matter. You know, 
you could have an army of 57s. If you have a great monitor system, you can really change those around and make them into different things. Got to say a couple of things. One is, is um, if your listeners don't know Chad Blake, go check out his uh, dummy head setup, his, his uh, binaural head, and with these crazy tubes that go out, and he puts that up as one of his mics, the coolest thing you'll ever see. And then two is you've got to, got to, got to go listen to Los, Los Lobos Colossal Head. It'll change, change your world. Okay, see, you and I are brothers from another podcast because that is one of my favorite records that that he's worked on. Yep. Well, cool. Lidge, thank you so much for being on the show. It's great to have you on. And uh, listeners, if you haven't heard Lidge's podcast, uh, Recording Studio Rockstars, uh, as as Lidge pointed out, and I'll reiterate, we are brothers from another podcast. And uh, see, Indeed. we could we could we could have another podcast called cool. Brothers from Another Podcast. Oh shoot! Well, at least you know we don't have too much work on our plate already. <laughs> <laughs> well on that note i will uh i will let you go thanks Liz, for being on the show and uh i will talk to you at another time all right dude thanks so much matt it's an absolute pleasure and i look forward to spending more time listening to working class audio same goes for you with me with recording studio Rockstars. take care cheers well, there you have it, Lid Shaw from the Recording Studio Rockstars podcast here on the Working Class Audio podcast. A little confusing, I know, especially for fans of both shows. Anyways, great to have Lidge on, great to talk to him, super cool guy. Uh, so yeah, thanks for listening. Hey, uh, if you do like the show, please head on over to iTunes and leave a nice review. Would appreciate that. In the meantime, we're out of time, so we got to make sure and thank everybody involved. Got to thank Cliff Truesdale. Cole Williams and Chuck Smith. I want to thank our sponsors, Gearsluts.com, Focal Monitors, Audio Technica, and Universal Audio. And of course, I want to thank you. I appreciate the time that you take to listen to me rant every week and uh, listen to my guests. So uh, until then, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at Gearspace.com called audio life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com. Check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out.